You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Money is not buying the U.S. better health care than that in other developed countries, and they spend significantly less. If we are not getting more for our money, what are the reasons for increasingly expensive health care in the U.S.? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Chicago is my guest, Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and author of the book, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science. Welcome, Dr. Whelan. Good to be with you. Dr. Whelan, you have described health care as a luxury good in the economic sense of the term. Explain what you mean by luxury good and how higher expectations for medical care in our society drive up the cost of health care. Well, yeah, we should qualify that luxury good is actually a term of art for economists. I'm not saying health care is a luxury. People start slamming the radios down. A luxury good, in the economic sense, if you dust off your old micro textbook, is something that you spend more on as your income goes up. The opposite would be an inferior good, which means you actually spend less of your income on it as your income goes up. So the classic inferior good is ramen noodles. You know, once you get out of grad school, it's not likely that Donald Trump is, is ordering more ramen noodles than my typical graduate student. Healthcare is the opposite, though. It's more like a fine wine or something like that, that as you get richer, you only need so many TVs, your house can only be so big, but increased health spending actually continues to provide enormous benefits because health is something that you really want to invest in. And that's married to increased capacity to deliver good health, that we can simply do things that we couldn't do previously, whether it's replacing hips or giving you new organs. So this confluence of having a richer country with greater expectations for health and an increasing capacity to provide that means that we're likely to spend a lot more, a higher percentage of our income and a higher percentage of our GDP as a nation on health care than a poor country would or the U.S. would have 50 years ago. I suppose that would mean that some people who can't afford it are even paying more than they need to, that they're doing more medically than they even need to. Sure, because health care is something that you don't really want to compromise on. So if you're very affluent and you say, all right, well, we can, you can spend twice as much and you'll get a slightly better outcome, or you can buy another washing machine. They're going to say, well, I've already got a washing machine. This health investment, even if it's not a sure thing, even if it's not terribly cost-effective, is still a better use of my very expansive resources. So I think that one of the takeaways is the fact that health care costs are rising is not necessarily a red flag. They're rising around the world, and part of that is a very good thing, which is simply we're spending more on health care because we can do great things that we couldn't do before, and we're opting to spend that money on health care because we think it gives us a big raise return. The red flag is that we're spending so much more than other industrialized countries. They're also seeing price increases. We're just spending roughly twice as much of our GDP, and we're not getting better outcomes for it. Another factor that you list as a contributing factor to rising health care costs, and this may be more unique to the United States, is that for most patients with health insurance, they don't pay directly for what they consume. How does the role of health insurance companies as the financially responsible party contribute to rising health costs? Well, somebody's always got to monitor care. So if we had no health insurance at all and it were just a pure market system, the consumer would market it. You'd go to the doctor. The doctor would say, I'm going to replace your right knee. It's going to cost $7,500. And you would either do it or not do it, depending on how your knee felt. And you might see another doctor, and it would be just like buying a car. In the current insurance climate, you go to the doctor. He doesn't tell you how much it's going to cost because you don't really care. If you're insured, someone else is going to pay for it. So at that point... 
the insurance company has got to monitor. And if you've got an HMO, they may make you go to a particular doctor. They may have fixed a price ahead of time. There's obviously a lot of effort put into monitoring how much things cost, controlling what services people are provided, and so on, because the patient won't do that on his own if he's insured. Now, if you go to a different system like the Canadian system or the national health system in Britain, instead they monitor kind of universally. They say basically if you're a 34-year-old and you're in such and such health, then you are either eligible or not eligible to have your hip replaced. And we've only got a certain number of surgeons who do that. And if there are other people sicker than you, they're going to get the surgery first. And basically they fix the amount of money that they're spending on health care, and then they allocate it kind of on a triage basis. So every system from the pure market to the single payer has got some mechanism for saying yes or no. In our system, for those who are insured, it's the insurance company trying to keep up with the physician and the patient. And in most cases, if you're insured, you're going to get the green light. We don't have really good mechanisms at the insurance company level for saying whether this is cost-effective or not cost-effective care. What stops them? It's a very good question. I don't know. I mean, there's some really curious findings, basically. The first is that we spend a lot of money on technology that works. That's great. You know, it's cost-effective, all good. And we should point out that at the top end, the U.S. is as good as it gets. You know, the Shah of Iran did not fly to Cuba or Canada to get health care. He flew to the United States. And it remains the case. However, there is also, as a companion to the piece to that, a lot of high technology care, very expensive care, that's not producing great results. And the difference, of course, lies in telling the difference. You know, how can you tease that out? And we don't, the insurance companies don't do that. Why they don't do it, I don't know. But that's certainly the key to getting some cost effectiveness back into the system. And then the last piece that's also kind of befuddling is basically there's a lot of relatively cheap care that we don't do that would pay off enormously. And that's not happening, including among insured patients, that basically the, some of the standard protocols, giving an aspirin tablet to someone who presents with the symptoms of a heart attack, is so routine, so effective, and yet when you actually go out and figure out whether, whether people are doing it or not, you get surprising results. So part of that is also unexplained. And then the last piece I think that is fairly easily explained is you have people who are uninsured who don't get care that would be very cost-effective, but since they can't afford it out of pocket, it doesn't happen. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and author of the book, Naked Economics, Undressing the Dismal Science. Dr. Whelan, in talking about how insurance companies do or don't try to contain costs, you mentioned something that's very interesting and seems to be coming up in terms of health care reform, the idea of prevention. And there seems to be tons of evidence that there are lots of things that people can do preventatively for their health. And you just mentioned that insurance companies don't even kind of promote prevention or cheap services that could really help prevent later costs. That is also an economic mystery on two levels. One is why individuals aren't doing it even without some incentive from their insurance company. So I think most people have a pretty good sense of what matters in the long run to your health. It's eating right. It's not being grossly obese. It's not smoking. It's not drinking in excess and so on. And yet we do it. I mean, basically, the Americans are some of the most overweight people on the planet. And so why are people doing that when we know or should know that the health costs are so astronomical? And I mean, the health costs, not in dollars and cents, but basically diminished longevity. 
And the second is, even if we didn't do that on our own, because we are addicted to smoke or whatever, why is it that our insurance company, which is going to have to pay the bills for all this activity, hasn't put us in wellness programs, isn't monitoring our smoking, trying to get us off, and so on? And there is some of that. You see some smoking cessation programs and so on. But it's by and large little. I've never gotten any notice from my insurance company either checking in on how much I exercise or how I eat or anything like that. So it's odd to me that the entity that's going to pay the bill for this self-destructive behavior has not acted in any way to try and curtail it. We hear a lot also about the aging population and health care. How does the aging population in the U.S. play a role in health care costs? Well, it's certainly the demographic underlying the numbers in two respects. One is we're simply living longer. And I think one thing when you're talking about costs, one of the paradoxes is death is often the low-cost option. So if you're thinking about in terms of the global health care budget, if you save somebody with a miraculous heart surgery today, well, the chances are that they're going to have cancer in 12 years. So it's a mixed blessing. So that's one of those health care costs that we should simply acknowledge is probably a good thing, that you know, over the course of somebody's lifetime, providing the best care isn't necessarily going to be cheaper, even if you're largely successful. So the fact that we're living longer is simply one of the things going on here. Older people are obviously more intense users of the health care system. The fact that people are living healthier, by and large, better lives is good. The other demographic trend to bear in mind is not only are people living longer, but we've got the baby boomers moving into retirement. And if you ever need a little mental skill to try and remind you how old the baby boomers are, the cutting edge of the baby boom are those who were born, obviously, in 1946-47. And both Bill Clinton and George Bush are baby boomers. They're the cutting edge of the baby boom. Now, you have to think back, what happened to Bill Clinton last year, the year before? He had open-heart surgery. So we've got not only people living longer, but we've got this huge kind of pig-in-the-python cohort of people that are getting older and will be more expensive. So we've got two things going on, longer lives and this big baby boom generation that's going to be very expensive. You mentioned this idea that every time there's a, a patient's life is saved by medical intervention, the need for future medical intervention is reinitiated and called it, I guess, a happy thing or a good thing. And yet, if you compare our system to some other systems, the determination and the amount of care provided at the end of life, it's different. I think that's one of those things that most people look at and say, this doesn't make any sense, that you know, we're spending, no matter how you cut the data, a disproportionate amount of money on folks who are in the last six months or last year of their life, often you know, extreme dollars and cents, given that those resources could probably be spent somewhere else, that they didn't really provide huge quality of life benefits that people got them. They say, all right, this seems like a place where we could do better. Now, there are two things to point out. The first is, we don't always know it's the last year of life, right? I mean, you look yeah, at the data. You're, you're in dangerous territory, right? Exactly. Talking about this. I mean, so it's easier after the fact to say, boy, we spent a lot of money and he died two days later. You know, he might have lived for 10 more years. So it's hard to tell before the fact whether this money should be spent or not. The second is, all right, let's, let's assume that in most cases we're pretty sure that this money isn't the most cost-effective way to spend it. Who tells grandma, right? I mean, who's going to break the news? What's the entity that makes decisions based on, okay, this is going to provide three more years of life or three months of life or something like that, but it's not worth $350,000. And that, I think, is institutionally very difficult. Even if we agree we're spending a disproportionate amount of money on people who are beyond the point where it can do a whole lot of good in terms of quality of life, how do you make that decision? Who makes it? And how does it get carried out? This may be a big question, but with regard to soaring health costs in the U.S., are there solutions that economics can suggest? 
Yeah, I mean, I think economics can help. It won't provide an answer. I mean, it's not like we're, there's an equation lurking out there, and if we get the variables right, it's going to spit out the correct healthcare system. I think it can't help us make trade-offs. I mean, economics is basically the study of how we deal with scarcity in everyday life. So how do we allocate crops and land and salaries and everything else? And so we usually do that through markets. And we recognize that we can't do everything. You know, if I'm talking to you right now, I'm not working on a book, I'm not spending time with my kids. Economists always study how we make these trade-offs because you always have to give up something to do something else. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Charles Whelan, lecturer in public policy at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Whelan. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.